All right, let me call us back to our seats. Good morning. My name is Paul Choi. I'm one of the pastors here at Village. And, <laughs> and it is my great honor and privilege to um, speak from the Word this morning. And before we do that, can we all bow our heads together? Spirit of the living God, what a beautiful orchestra music we've just heard. And we thank you for your gift of music, the people, and the fact that you deserve all the praises. Every instrument had its own and distinctive sound, character, and role, but they all came together under a conductor. And likewise, we, every single one of us in this room, are all different with different characters and passions and gifts and backgrounds. But we are grateful with great expectancies because you are the greatest conductor of all. So help us to live our lives dancing and making beautiful sound of praises together as a church in accordance to your guidance. So use this hour to speak to us and lead our lives. In your name we pray, amen. amen. So the scripture passage that uh, has been given for this Sunday is from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where the evangelist narrates the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a story that took place in the very early part um, of the early church's history. So reading from the scripture, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And by also, uh, it means that somebody else has done it before, right? And then it must be Barnabas from the previous chapter, who had the nickname of son of encouragement, a man of encouragement he should have been, a well-respected and loved by all kind of man uh, who sold a piece of the land that he owned and gave the money to the church and the people in need. Everyone complimented him for his sacrificial giving, and perhaps this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, Envy the compliments, so they also sold a piece of their property and planned and shared with the whole church uh, and others that they would bring it to the church. But when the money actually came into their hands, and when they felt the heaviness of the weights of the coin monies, they now thought, hmm, hmm, perhaps this is too much, just for gaining the compliments. So verse 2 continues. With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself for some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. So hearing the story uh, of a man who kept back part of his offerings for himself instead of bringing the whole to the church and ended up being killed Here's a question for this morning. Has anybody left anything um, at home this morning? <laughs> did, 
Didn't you forget something? Are you sure uh, you brought everything? Is everybody around you okay, still alive? <laughs> what, what do you think is the point of this passage? Is this God the kind of God who you've known? Is God desperately demanding and asking for your money? Is he angry because the man brought too little? A death penalty for a miserly and stingy giver? Is this God the kind of God you've known and loved? When it is difficult and challenging to understand what God is up to in a single story like this one, a difficult passage, rather than making assumptions and generalizing the assumptions as if they were the universal principles, it is always wise to have a look at other similar passages throughout the scripture so that we compare and understand what, the, understand what this particular passage was really about in light of the whole scripture's teachings. Does that make sense? So today, instead of being bound to this passage only, uh, we'll expand our text to the whole books of Luke and Acts, namely the exploring uh, the Luke and Jesus' understanding of money and giving, and then see what the Bible has to say about money and giving. There's one book that I found really interesting a while ago. Uh, the book is titled, Everybody Lies. Everybody Lies. By a New York Times journalist and a Harvard PhD on this topic, and it became New York Times bestseller and Amazon's best back in 2017. And this is the question that the author asked uh, at the beginning of the book. When does a person become most honest? When does a person become most honest? What do you think? When do you become most honest? When would that be? Would it be at the judicial court where we must make an oath that we'll give truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Would it be in front of our spouse and friends? Would you say that you are always honest and perfectly honest before your spouse at all times? Would it be before one's death, perhaps at one's deathbed? Would it be at the church, perhaps before a pastor? Would it be during your prayer? When would that be? When would you be most honest? The author's answer is, in front of Google. www.google.com <laughs> where you can have an access in just a second or two, for surely your cell phone is with you always to the very end of the age. <laughs> so in front of Google, we ask honest questions out of nakedness, frankness, and straightforwardness. Suppose that a teenager became pregnant. What would she, who would she ask first? Parents, friends, or Google? When you go through depressions, menopause, or suicidal temptation, or even, or even symptoms of a cold, isn't Google your first respondent? Should I go on this family vacation to Hawaii? Who should I consult first? Google. Whether the price is good, whether it's worth going on this season, and etc. Nobody needs to restrain his or her desires and curiosities before Google, nor she needs to express by a euphemism. 
you will type in the most relevant and straightforward keywords. For there is a clear difference between the percentage of the people who say that they watch pornography and the actual percentage of people who search pornography on the internet. Shouldn't we say perhaps we are most honest in front of Google, says the author. So the title states, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. The innermost desires and tendencies which we might not be aware of, but he, the mighty, omniscient, big data, knows. That's the world we are living in. But here's the thing. As much as the Google and the big data, there's one more bold reference which frankly reveals who you really are and what kind of life you are actually pursuing. What do you think it might be? It is your bank statements. It is your bank statements. Where the big data may be numerically and statistically revealing our innermost desires and interests, our bank statements reveal our outer expressions and the pursuits and the patterns of life in numerical and statistical ways. Suppose that you picked up an anonymous person's tax statements and all the year-long bank statements with credit card expense details. Would you not know what kind of person this may be? You probably almost correctly be able to imagine what the person does, what he pursues, what he values in life, and what kind of lifestyle he might have. I know we have accountants here in this room, and what would you say on this? This might be why we experience this dilemma. Would you feel more comfortable with choosing your close friends or neighbor as your tax, personal tax accountant so that he sees all your income details and expenses and giving histories? Or perhaps would you be more comfortable with having someone in a little more distance? Why would you have a second thought? Isn't closer the better? Isn't this a dilemma? Don't we normally trust and work with closer people? It is because our financial life, our finance, money, functions as a mirror to see ourselves in a way that is perhaps too straightforward and naked. Jesus is interested in your money, not necessarily because he needs and wants more of yours, but because it represents who you really are. Think about how Jesus dealt with the money matters in the Gospels. The writer of Luke and Acts often describes his character's socioeconomic status by mentioning whether they were rich or poor. And we have read so many stories in which Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And remember the clearly contrasted stories of Jairus, the rich Roman centurion, whose 12-year-old daughter was suffering to the story of a poor, powerless woman who, who, who suffered from bleeding for how many years? For 12 years. And the contrasting stories together tell us how they, the rich and poor, are connected in Christ Jesus. We have heard about the story of a woman who brought an alabaster jar of perfume to Jesus 
And the, Jesus is following conversation with the crowds who criticize about the wasteful use of the money. And when Zacchaeus committed to give half of his possessions to the poor, Jesus did not say, that's a good idea. But he said, today, salvation has come to this house. What about in the book of Acts? What was the very first revolution that took place immediately after the outpouring of the Spirit on a Pentecost? Material revolution, financial revolution, all the believers having everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, and giving to anyone in need. That was the very first change witnessed in the Spirit-anointed anointed people of God. Perhaps we might have been operating with a dualistic mindset by thinking and saying, why does a church talk about money? Church must be talking about faith, prayer, spirituality, and Jesus. Why being so secular and making us uncomfortable? And brothers and sisters, first of all, you must run away from the churches that are possessed by mammon, the money god, who have turned away from Jesus and turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. They, these are the churches which are subject to the judgment of Jesus. Unfortunately, not every church is a church of Christ. Even if a church has a church signboard, sings beautiful hymns every Sunday, and reads the scripture, that does not necessarily make it into a church of Christ. Money-pursuing, money-driven, money-worshipping churches with prosperity gospel are no more churches of Christ but a mammonist temple. Just like what the crying prophet Jeremiah did and just like what Jesus did to the Jerusalem temple, we must lament by seeing the fake churches and perhaps we must declare with tears, you, fake church, be destroyed. That is also a part of the gospel proclamation, a painful truth. But that's not the end of the story. At the same time, you must run away from churches that do not talk about money. They have demolished the gospel of Christ into psychological tranquilizers for those who need comfort. Instead of calling us to take up our cross and follow the master, they've converted the intrinsically inconvenient gospel of Christ into a gospel of comfort and prosperity. You must run away from these fake gospels which hardly talk about money. Think about Jesus and think about how many times Jesus talked about money. Which one do you think Jesus talked about more between faith and prayer combined and money? The Bible talks about money twice more than it talks on faith and com prayers combined. 2,350 verses just on money. If I were to preach from the gospel, gospel's interest being proportionally correct, I should be preaching twice more on money than faith and prayer. And that makes me guilty of not preaching enough about money. I hope it's a rumor, but I heard the story that a famous pastor from Southern California, whose church building has been sold to a Roman Catholic church a few years ago, 
said to another famous pastor at one of the largest churches in Texas these days, hey, don't talk about sin too much. People don't feel good about it. Wow, that's, if that's the reason for restricting and redefining the gospel, can it still be regarded as the gospel of Christ? You know, I used to, used to tend to think that a pious Christian should not care and worry about money too much because God knows and He will provide. That, I tended to think, it was a pure faith, trusting Jesus. But as I come to know the Scripture little by little, and as I get to know Jesus little by little, and as I get to know the world and the reality little by little, not worrying about money and not dealing carefully with the details of the money issues has less to do with a pure faith, but has more to do with ignorance about myself, about the world, about true Christian spirituality, and the kingdom of God. That's the way to be irresponsible for the kingdom. If my faith does not get resulted into the practicalities of life, Perhaps it may be a childish faith or even potentially a fake faith. In Luke chapter 21, we are encountered with this heartbreaking story if we dare to find out what, what was really going on behind the scene. There was a poor widow, and we need to interpret this in its own cultural context. Although she is called a widow, it is highly probable and likely that this lady's husband did not pass away yet, but that she was thrown away from him. You can imagine what the female human right in the ancient Near East must have been like. You know, divorce was coerced, then mutually agreed. If a husband thinks his wife is too lazy or does not sexually respond well to his needs, that itself wasn't enough reason for divorce in the first century Jewish society. For example, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 was, was not a promiscuous woman who married five or six times, but a woman who has been forsaken for them many times. Who were the prostitutes in the, in the, on the streets in the gospel? Forsaken women who did not have any other ways to survive. And likewise, this poor widow, who perhaps has experienced similar experiences of being forsaken and manipulated, put in two very small copper coins into the temple treasury. But you see, if you look at the first verse, it was the rich people first who put their gift into the treasury. Imagine the scenery. There must be many people in the temple court. Perhaps we will hear the noise of the crowd, lots of people actually watching and being interested in who put money into the treasury and how much that would be. Because they can actually hear the weight of the coin drops. So the sounds of the coin drops were different depending on the weight of the coins, like this. You see the, you hear the sounds? 
know, they are all different because the heaviness and the weights are different. Heavier, the stronger sound. And the crowds are hearing them. Knowing that this poor widow waits until everybody else finishes their offering, and when her turn comes, she's perhaps ashamed of the sound that her coins would make, or perhaps she is sorry that this is all she could give. A copper coin is, a smaller, is smaller than a penny, and that was all she had. And this might be the sound that this coin would make. Very light sound in front of everybody. And Jesus was watching her too. And this is what he said. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. How do you read this text? Is Jesus saying, did you see this disciples? Did you see her? She gave sacrificially, and that is a pleasing sacrifice. You should all give sacrificially like this widow. God is pleased. God must be pleased. And this is how we ought to give. Is this what Jesus is saying? Is she a model of our faith? That would be a total misunderstanding. That is exactly the opposite of what Jesus wants to say. Please have a look at the, look at the context of this passage. Luke chapter 20, 20 verse 20, uh, 45, very previous verse in the last chapter. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, be aware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Here, Jesus is criticizing the religious leaders of the day for their hypocritic uh, spirituality. And then he continues with this very important line. They, the religious leaders, devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So it's an anger and condemnation of Jesus towards the hypocritic, hypocritic lives of the religious leaders, those who do what they do in order to show to others. And pay attention to the first line, they devour widows' houses. Doesn't this ring a bell? Especially if the very next verse will be talking about a widow who gave copper coins to the temple treasury. You can imagine how did the teachers of the law, you think, teach the widows and the poor ones about what they should do with regards to giving, you know, given that we know this widow gave all she had to the temple. They must have taught, this is faith. This is what real faith is about. Give even in the midst of your poverty. Be sacrificial. God will bless you. Otherwise, you may be punished. Give so the temple would, be, would sustain to help the nation of Israel. This way, God will bring in the kingdom of God. Don't you think this must have been the kind of teaching that they did? So they built out of their money and sustained the temple, the beautiful-looking, prestigious temple. But look what Jesus has to say to them. In verse 5 in 20, chapter 21, some of his disciples were remarking about how temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, 
As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Do you see what Jesus is up to? He's saying, you took the money from the widows and the poor ones, and you think this temple's beautiful, made out of their sacrifice, majestic, ridiculous, and wicked. I'm going to destroy this temple. No one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. What's Jesus thinking and saying to the widow who gave all she had? Great job. Thank you, my daughter. I don't think so. He might be thinking, my poor girl, your heart, I know. But I know what you mean. But, but you know what? This is not what I want. The temple of God is not going to be built in this way. The temple of God will be built not by those who give because they want to show off to others, nor by those who give in order to be blessed back, nor by those who give in order to be loved by God, to earn the love. No, not at all. My love cannot be purchased nor earned. My temple will be built by those who give because they love me, by those who give because they love the world that the Lord loves and cares, by those who give because they love the people around us, by those who care for the kingdom to be revealed and come down to the earth as it is in the heavens, by those who declare that it is not Caesar, but Lord Jesus, who is in charge of my life and rules the world. That is the temple that Jesus is building. And these are the kinds of people that the Lord is building his temple together with. Jesus was looking at the widow when she was putting her coins into the treasury. And how do you imagine that his heart from a distance was like? And the same Jesus is looking at us this morning, looking at our giving. How do you imagine that his heart is like? What is the purpose of giving as we purpose of giving as we think about that in light of today's passage. Why give? Why did God demand it? And what kind of attitudes and expectations should we have? What is our motivation for giving? It is to rebuild the thrown down temple. It is to rebuild the kingdom of God. Not to be shown to others. Not as a face saver. We give not because we feel awkward and embarrassed if we didn't put anything into the offering basket that we get to pass on. If everybody knew how much I give, would I feel the pressure to give more maybe later? If nobody would know how much I would give forever, would, would I think of giving less than what I do now? What if the ushers and the people who count the offerings were your neighbors and your close friends, would the fact change anything about the amount you'd give at all? If, I, if we were there like 2,000 years ago at the Jerusalem court, temple court, where would you be? Would we be overhearing the sound of the coin drops by others and talking to one another, his coin was heavy? If, if that's the kind of temple that we are building, then it's a temple soon to be thrown down. 
Perhaps Jesus won't be amazed by the beauty of the temple and the amount of the, of the, of the giving that we were about um, to give and build. The temple that Jesus wants to build is a temple that is built with dreams to bring about his kingdom onto the earth. It will be a temple of Jesus Christ instead of, of a mammonist temple. Jesus is building an invisible temple which is no more made of bricks and stones, but is made of people who love Jesus and dream of his kingdom to come onto the earth. That is the church of Christ that Jesus is building up. Perhaps Jesus would have rather wanted, to, wanted the widow not to give the copper coin to the temple, but buy bread or something to drink for herself. If you have nothing to give, and you are worried for survivor, please don't give. And never, ever have a sense of guilt and shame. Don't be timid for not giving, but be confident with straight neck and stretched shoulders. This is the kind of confidence that only those who, who confess Jesus Christ as their Lord can have. It is the confidence of a child, a son, and a daughter can do that before parents. The father is perfectly good with this. Don't make the God of the universe a father who is eager to steal the children's money. That's a misunderstanding about God. But on the other hand, if you have more than what you need for survival, choose to be generous and share with others in dreaming of the kingdom. Especially remember the people outside of your comfort zone. Proclaim to the mammon that he is no longer your God, but Jesus is. Many years ago, a friend of mine asked me this question. I don't like how the church is operating its finance. Should I keep giving to the church? Can I give to elsewhere or help others by myself? How would you answer to this question? I think instead of having one universal answer for any, every case, we must consider a few important values. First, if a purpose of giving is to rebuild the thrown down temple, the ultimate question to be asked is not whether I should give to this church or not, but rather what can we do in order to rebuild this temple of God? Instead of merely having skepticisms or criticizing um, the case, go to the budget meetings and share the constructive ideas and look forward to the creative wisdom that comes from the Spirit into the community. If the leadership is a wicked hireling, which will not change, shake the dust off your feet and leave the community. That might be a form of a discipleship of faithful discipleship. On the other hand, you can choose to keep trying to reform and rebuild the community into a more Christ-like one. That might be also another form of a discipleship. Just follow after the Spirit's guidance and also use the common sense. And another friend of mine once asked, how much should I give? Is one-tenth the Christian obligation? In other words, is tithing a Christian responsibility? And how would you answer to this question? In Leviticus 27, Moses states, a tithe 
of everything belongs to the Lord, obligating the people of God, the Israelites, to give one-tenth of their income. In the book of Malachi, the prophet states, those who do not tithe are actually stealing money from God. You are robbing me, said God to the Israelites. Having said that, should we say that one-tenth is indeed the Christian obligation? We need to have a look at the intents of the passages. There are differing ideas and opinions, but I personally think that the Bible is not teaching us in a legalistic tone and legalistic way to give one-tenth regardless of our life situation. But at the same time, it is also inviting us to give sacrificially and generously, not as a legalistic um, responsibility, but as a privileged opportunity to partner with the Spirit for the rebuilding of His kingdom. Think about Leviticus. It is when there were 12 tribes and the Levites who were committed to be a priestly tribe for the whole nation. The Lord told the Levites to be fully devoted to the priestly work, and that required them to depend on the other 12 tribes for their living. So in this context, if an Israelite tribe did not tithe, that meant that, that they would be led to a starvation, the Levites. Why one-tenth back in those days? Because there were 12 tribes, and if one-tenth is collected from each tribe, it's about the right amount that was needed to feed the whole nation. The amount was based on the needs of the society. What about the book of Malachi? After the exile, the tribal divisions had become more vague and there were no needs to feed the Levites because there were no like, tribal divisions clearly. However, it was when the Israelites needed to rebuild the city after the exile. The city has been destroyed during the exile. Everyone was in poor living condition. But for the sake of rebuilding the community and the nation, they committed themselves to give one-tenth of their incomes. Tithing was required because there were specific needs, rebuilding the city and the nation. If one did not participate, he was being selfish, and therefore his choice was described in the book as a robbery, which neglects the needs of the community. And what is the common principle in these passages? They were under a, a, an obligation to tithing because there were communal needs. Therefore, the biblical principle is not that whereas 90% is mine, the 10% is to the Lord. No. Rather, because there are needs of the world, the community of Christ commit themselves together to give sacrificially and generously to meet the needs of the community and the world. Is tithing a Christian obligation? No, I don't think so. Not in a legalistic way. If there's nothing to give, don't give and be confident but at the same time, yes, because we must ask, are there then no needs for tithing in this community and world and this generation? Of course there is. There are lots of needs in the world for the kingdom, perhaps even more than ever before, in order to rebuild the temple of God. 
Therefore, it is yes, yes, in a privileged way of participating in the ministries of the Spirit who is truly alive and working, before text or after text. I don't think that's at the heart of the matter. That doesn't really matter. The real question is, how much needs of the world do you feel and see around you? And what can I do in order to partner with the Spirit in rebuilding the kingdom on the earth? How passionate are you to see the living church of Christ being rebuilt on the earth? Do you really want to see His kingdom come onto the earth as it is in heaven? Or are we actually trying to build our own kingdom on the earth? Please let me conclude. At the beginning of the message, we ask ourselves this question, when do I become most honest? When do I become most honest? What is your response to this question? What do you want your answer to be for the future? As we heard the sounds of the coin drops, we might be being too much conscious of others' voices and what what they have to say about us, paying attention to what others might be thinking and saying about us, listening to the heaviness of the coin drop sounds. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us pay our attention to the voice of the Spirit who is alive in us instead of anything else. Let us ask Him what kinds of needs He is seeing and what He wants to see together with Him. Let Jesus be your Lord and King of life in all aspects of life and let your bank statements reflect your faith in Him and your passion for the kingdom. Isn't it Jesus Christ first Himself who first gave himself to us sacrificially and generously. Hasn't God the Father been generous to you thus far and this morning? I pray that God will continue to work within us so that our lives will be spent to rebuild the thrown down temple for the glory of the Father. Let us pray. Generous Father, We thank you for your generosity and love. As the psalmist confessed, you are the good shepherd, and we can be at a place where we need nothing else but you. So, Lord, lead us to the place where we find your generous love for us and help us to become more like you in our life. In your name we pray, amen.